Welcome. You're listening to Intersection, the podcast from the Brookings Institution. I'm your host, Adriana Pita. With me today are E.J. Dion Jr., a senior fellow in our Governance Studies Department, a columnist with The Washington Post, and author of the new book, Why the Right Went Wrong, From Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. Also with me today is Constanza Stelzenmuller. She is one of our Robert Bosch Senior Fellow with the Center on U.S. and Europe. So thank you both for being here Great today. Great to be with you. Pleasure to be here. So today I wanted to discuss the rise of right-wing populism uh, in both the U.S. and Europe, sort of comparing what's going on on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, We know this strain of populism typically bubbles up in times of great economic stress and social upheaval. And while Donald Trump's current success in the primaries is making this sort of a rather pressing hot topic at the interest, we know that this has been brewing for a much longer time than that. There's the obvious factors of the last decade, economic instability and global recession, the euro instability in Europe, and what that means for the political union there. Of course, the recent rise of ISIS as a more physically oriented threat. But I wanted to start to ask the two of you to kind of dig into some of the more root causes on both sides and help us set the stage to understand the bigger picture about what's going on. EJ, would you like to start? Yes, I I think that there are certain common roots and then particular roots of of what's happening in the United States. Um, I locate the common roots first and foremost in globalization and technological change where you have an awful lot of people both in Europe and the United States displaced, uh, displaced in the sense that they – had decent standard of living, could count on decent standards of living and saw that happening for their children. And that's been true since, the, if you will, the European economic miracle after World War II. And it's obviously been true in the United States for a long time. That's in danger now, which is creating a lot of discontent. One would imagine that a lot of this discontent might benefit the left since, especially after the economic downturn, a lot of the blame fell to Wall Street, to bankers, um, to the whole banking system. And rising inequality is generally seen as contributing to the parties of the left who advocate for greater equality. But this kind of insecurity is overlaid now with other forms of insecurity, as you suggested, insecurity related to terrorism and insecurity both in the U.S. and Europe uh, related to immigration. Uh, And you have a kind of nationalism, uh, worry about national identity, a worry about the impact of immigrants. And at the extreme, this flows into a kind of racism and deep sense of uh, deep sort of exclusionist uh, politics. Um, I think what's most surprising is that the U.S. on the whole – uh, has up to now been resistant to European a European style far right. We've had our movements at at various moments in history, um, but our far right has tended to take uh, the forms of anti-communism. We certainly had McCarthyism, but you didn't have this mixture of certain egalitarian slogans used, which Trump does use against special interests, mixed with this economic and other forms of nationalism. And so I think this is a peculiar convergence of a sort that uh, uh, I'm not sure we have seen before. Constanza, do you want to give us the European sure. perspective? Absolutely. Um, uh, there's a great deal that E.J. Dion has said that I completely agree with. So I won't cover that ground again. Uh, but let me just perhaps add some uh, some thoughts. One is I, I'm a f- not a, an analyst of domestic politics in Europe so much as a foreign and security policy. Um, expert. And of course, what 
the, my starting point, I think, would be the famous Global 2025 report of the National Intelligence Council that's done every five years and based on open source intelligence. And one of the big predictions of the last that last report was that there would be the rise of the global middle class and that that would increase everybody's prosperity and make the world as such more peaceful. What we're finding is uh, that uh, one thing has happened, which I think those uh, the, the thinkers at the National Intelligence Council didn't envision, which is that there is such a thing as permanent losers from globalization. People who feel or fear that they will be permanently excluded from the benefits of the social contract, from representative democracy, and from the prosperity gains of globalization. And I suspect there is a great deal of uh, empirical data to show that there are such groups. Um, we can certainly find them all across Europe, and including in my own country, Germany, where the increasing amount of aggression and hate uh, relating to refugees and c coming particularly from Eastern Germany suggests that we underestimated the degree to which some people, as it were, were taken along with the reunification and globalization and other people have felt, as it were, stranded, not receiving any of the benefits of, of, the, of the last 20 and 30 years. Now, what EJ describes, and I think the reason why there is a difference between how this feels on both sides of the Atlantic, is that, of course, Europe and my own country with its borders with 10 countries, um, my own country, Germany, that is, um, that we are used to the dilemmas of the open society, which is loss of control and the increasing necessity of trading sovereignty for control. In other, the, the entire European Union is really an attempt to regain control through, uh, if you will, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking pooled for? Pooled sovereignty. Uh, pooling, no, through pooling sovereignty and economies of scale. That's the word I was looking for. And the dilemma of the open society, of course, is, is that we relinquish to some degree control over our borders, control over people. And as EJ was saying just now, of course, technology has exacerbated this. You know, technology and the advent of social media has led to the fragmentation of, of those, the, the public conversation, the fragmentation of the polity. Um, and I think has led, has empowered, as it were, the direct democratic strain of thinking on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think for the Americans, it is new. It is it is new to 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 realize that globalization and deep economic integration affects even them. I think here it was always possible to think, well, if we shut down the borders with Canada and Mexico, we'll be okay because nothing can come and touch us. And of course, 9-11 put an end to that belief. But I think what we're what we're seeing now is is a resistance to the to the idea that um, that the rest of the world could have an impact on on the workings of America, but that's exactly what globalization means. Finally, in in Europe, um, to to EJ's point about uh, about the the right and left perspectives, I think what we're also seeing in Europe is a difference of in the takes that people have on their own country's history. Yeah. For the Poles and for the Eastern Europeans in general, they have just come out of nearly half century under Soviet rule. They have just regained nationhood. It is for them extremely difficult to accept 
the relinquishing of of sovereignty that comes with integration in the European Union and with submitting to what the Germans are suggesting now, which is a Europe-wide arrangement on the distribution of refugees. And I have to say, I have to understand that. And it's maybe to make this point more clear to Americans, um, remember that in the Deep South, in fact, all of the South that lost the Civil War, there is a completely different narrative of what the Civil War and what Union was about. And arguably, that that fight was was begun again in the civil rights movement and in the debate about about the, the Voting Rights Act, about Brown v. Board and, and all the other cases that, that led to a uh, uh, an ending of the discrimination of black people in this in this country historical memories different historical memories are a very very potent divisive factor and that is uh, one an important root of what we're going through right now in Europe if I could just underscore two things my colleagues said one is there was a poll earlier this year in South Carolina that among South Carolina Republicans, only 36% said they were happy the North won the Civil War, which is really remarkable in the year (laughs) 2016. Now only 30%, but still 30% said they wish the South had won and the rest didn't didn't want to express an opinion, which suggests that 36% of Republican primary voters, who it should be said were almost all white in the end, um, took that view. So it does show that even these memories um, last. Uh, the other point I really want to underscore is that this sense that a lot of what you might call blue-collar people in both uh, Europe and the United States, the sense they have that the last uh, 20 or 30 years have not been good to them is not something they're making up. I mean, these are Mm. real grievances. These are legitimate uh, grievances that there are people who have been badly hurt by globalization and technological change and all the promises to make globalization work for everyone. uh, Those promises for these folks have not been kept. And so it creates a kind of anger um, that uh, we shouldn't be surprised about and that I think, um, you know, elites in all these countries really need to sensitize themselves to. I think there really has been a separation uh, geographically because some regions do far better than others. Um, and in class terms generally, there's been a real separation of experiences um, and the fact that probably a lot of people in my affluent suburb of Bethesda don't know anybody who's voting for Donald Trump says something uh, to us. And it doesn't say something good about Bethesda and bad about other places. It says how separated we are in class terms at this point. Let me me just add, there's a, I I find magisterial description of what's been happening here in George Packer's book, The Unraveling of America. And I would only say that we could have 28 versions of George Packer's book for for the countries of Europe. There's that kind of unraveling of the social contract, of the economic contract, and of representative democracy going on almost everywhere. And I think political elites have been complacent about that. And I think it's also, if I could add before we go on, it's a real challenge for the left because the job of um, social democratic or progressive parties has been to try to contain these inequalities, to spread opportunity. Um, And social Democrats thought they might be the people who would benefit after the economic crash. It tends to historically voters often turn that way, but they didn't uh, in this case. They did actually in the United States by turning to President Obama. Um, And I think that – I think there's a lot of – 
you know, among progressives and social democrats alike, there is a need for, and I think a fair amount of it is going on, about how to take this traditional idea that worked very well in industrial societies uh, and figure out how does it apply uh, in this very new circumstance. And I don't think the social democrats or progressives have, have quite gotten there yet. There have been recent efforts. Uh, you know, the Center for American Progress was involved in one of them that I was involved in, the Roosevelt Institute. There are efforts to get there, but I think there's a lot of work to do. I wanted to get at that, EJ, about why there hadn't been a stronger response, um, e- either a swing by the public to the left or you know, a stronger response from the more liberal parties. Um, we haven't seen anything like the labor movement of the early 20th century, the late 19th century. Yes, you know, Senator Warren was elected in. We elected Barack Obama. You're seeing Sanders' popularity. Uh, Europe has its socialist parties. It has a, a much more uh, – there's a much stronger leftist representation in Europe going on. I was wondering why the crash didn't show more more turn, more support for the labor force and for the working class who need that help to face their grievances? Well, first of all, the labor movement in the United States has been decimated over a very long period of time. The share of the labor force uh, that was unionized has dropped steadily, as particularly the private sector labor force. And the new sorts of employment, you, you've seen a decline of, of factory work um, even the new manufacturing jobs we're getting are small because high, you know, high-end manufacturing involves many fewer people. Um, so you've lost those bastions of the United Auto Workers. The, the auto industry is alive and well, but with a much smaller number of employees. Our steel industry is not what it used to be. And the service sectors are much harder to organize in the best of times. And um, you've had a real war on labor for a long time. So that's part of the story here. Um, Also, because Barack Obama was elected, uh, I think there may have been less agitation and the Obama administration did not encourage opposition to its left. I think one of the intriguing differences between Obama and Roosevelt are, A, um, Roosevelt took over after three years of depression. So there was no ambiguity that all of this mess was hung around Hoover. Uh, Obama had the misfortune of taking over after the crash, but the full effects of it weren't felt until he raised his hand and took uh, the oath of office, which created some strange kind of uh, strange developments from his point of view in American politics. It strengthened uh, the opposition. Um, the other is you did have one big Um, expression of opposition that finally arose with Occupy Wall Street. But Occupy Wall Street was resolutely apolitical in any sort of electoral sense. They very consciously eschewed politics, electoral politics. Um, And I think Bernie Sanders' campaign might be seen as the delayed political expression of Occupy uh, Wall Street, that the obviously the unlike the Tea Party, which was political from its electorally political from the outset, partly because so many Tea Party members were actually conservative Republicans long before they were, Barack Obama took office, they were engaged in politics right away. I think on the left, uh, it was Bernie Sanders who's brought that energy into electoral politics. So you are uh, you are seeing it now, but I think circumstances. And the nature of the movements that arose complicated the rise of uh, of uh, something that looked like a traditional left. Well, I think I can I can hook in right there. Um, I know a number of uh, German members of the Left Party, which is the inheritor of the old East German Communist Party. 
um, but is a much more important political force in well, Germany than that would. Well, plus the left wing of the SPD that split off. Yeah, I was about I was about to say it's added it's added it's taken on some other residuals as other parties have moved more to the center. Uh, there have always been some old diehard, you know, former communists in West Germany who attach themselves to this in many ways who are who are much more dogmatic than the East Germans are. And then there is the left, uh, the, the extreme left wing of the Social Democratic Party, which hasn't felt represented by uh, the party, for example, going into a grand coalition as it's done now uh, with the Christian Democrats who are right of center. I know a number of the parliamentarians uh, of, of the left party, several of them are really reasonable people that, that are worth talking to, uh, not least because um, they represent a political group or a group of voters in East Germany that felt that at the time of reunification in 1990, that what the West German parties were doing, what is known as in this country as carpetbagging. Um, in other words, to, to, to use another civil war um, me metaphor. Uh, and and so to some degree, the, the left party represents an East German political sensibility that doesn't feel represented by the establishment West German parties. That said, um, par part of the DNA of this party is to be, let's say, not very pro-American and in some cases virulently anti-American. And I've I've noted on the Twitter feed of some of the people that I follow, uh, sort of amused an amused wry and in in some ways I think quite curious looking towards America. I mean there are a number of them who are now saying, "Gosh, you know, I, what this Bernie Sanders guy is doing is really sort of." quite like something that we could identify with. And uh, I was listening to a German radio debate recently where, where one member of the left party said, you know, I've never been to America in my life. And actually, right now, I rather regret that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I did have to chuckle when I, when I heard that. But uh, to EJ's larger point um, of the, uh, you know, the the de-collectivization of the labor uh, movement and the and the left movement in this country. I mean, that's the Putnam's the bowling alone phenomenon, and that of course is is felt widely across Europe as well. In my country, Germany alone, when I was a kid, um, your where you stood politically was identified by three things: your church membership, and remember that our employers would would. Um, Pull in our church taxes for us. Um, those were deducted from our from our paycheck, and and of course there were only two. There was the Protestant and the Catholic. The Jewish community was tiny and didn't ask for this to, to to happen. That could happen at some point because it's much larger now. Then there were the political parties and the unions, of course. All three of these institutions, these social institutions, which were the glue of German society post-war, have been bleeding membership. I think similar things are happening in England and France and, and, and elsewhere. And so you see a degree of political uh, fragmentation, of social fragmentation, um, that, you know, when added to this feeling of economic and social exclusion, makes for a very potent mix um, of isolation, fear, and anger. And that is now translating in this, in this forceful critique of, of what is felt as disconnected establishment politics across the continent. And to just pick up on the German example and what's happened to parties of the left, I mean, the German Social Democrats kind of pioneered with the Bad Gottesberg program way back in 1959, where essentially this the big party of the left essentially accepted capitalism or accepted the market uh, as a mechanism. And then you had a further move that way with the third way politics in the 90s with Schroeder in Germany, with Clinton here, Tony Blair um, in Britain. 
Um, so you you had, if you will, uh, center left that vacated some space on the left politically, um, and there it took time for a sort of stronger left view to develop in as a critique of the. Uh, deregulation of the 1990s of the of the stock market of the financial institutions, um, so that you already had a left that was less left, if you will, um, and that's why, in a, in a way, the Sanders campaign shouldn't surprise us in the least because there was a lot of space there to be occupied. And Sanders, in a way, is giving us a more realistic view of what the political spectrum actually looks like. I've always joked that when people attack President Obama as a socialist, I would always say, well, I know socialists, and they're insulted when Barack Obama is called a socialist because he's not a socialist. Bernie is showing us a bit more of what a democratic socialist actually looks like. Yeah, I mean, as someone who grew up in the 90s, it was that period of liberal becoming, was being very successfully made into a dirty word. And so the Democrats very been slowly moving to the, very much to the center while the Republican Party moved ever further to the right. Um, so, yes, it's, it's sort of coming back around on that. Uh, I wanted to touch on something that just came up in the, in the exchange you just had about the differences in the way that these political strains have been manifesting in the U.S. versus Europe because most European systems are using the parliamentary system where there is space for multiples of parties occupying several mm-hmm. different shades in the political spectrum, whereas in the U.S. we've been this rigid two-party system for a very long time. Um, and so we're, we've now come to the point where we're talking about a possible split with the GOP and you know, whether whether that's really serious or not, but it's an identity crisis for the party. Well, you know what I'd say is oddly we don't have – a rigid two-party system, we have a deeply entrenched, flexible two-party system. Mm, okay. And the reason I put it that way is because uh, for a very long time, one of the reasons uh, that we didn't have strong third parties, beyond the fact that there are some issues with the Electoral College that make that very complicated, um, is because each party has been able to absorb and contain all kinds of social movements. Bernie Sanders was not a member of the Democratic Party. He was an independent uh, who was a Democratic Socialist, yet he could run his campaign uh, inside the Democratic Party. Donald Trump has this mixture of views, some of which are very much in keeping with where a lot of Republicans have been, at least on the right of the party, particularly on on immigration and race and his attitude toward Muslims represents a real view inside that party. Um, On the other hand, his views on all sorts of economic issues, whether it's trade or a desire to negotiate drug prices under Medicare. He speaks about pharmaceutical companies with more sort of a, more of a left-wing critique than many Democrats have. This is a Democratic idea, his refusal to cut Social Security and Medicare. So the Republicans could absorb Trump as they could for 50 years ago absorb the Goldwater movement. Our Democrats have had insurgencies like the McGovern campaign against the war, Jim McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy in 1968, now Bernie. So the nature of our two-party system is such that a lot of the social movements that in other countries might find expression um, outside one of the big parties can usually find a way in. The, the com- complication here is, and I make this point in my book, that you know, which is a critique of how the Republican Party has moved uh, to the right and why. Um, and the first sentence of the book is the history of American conservatism uh, is a story of disappointment and betrayal, where I think conservative politicians since Goldwater's time have had to make uh, promises that they couldn't keep to their base, which steadily got angrier. 
Um, the, if you had a big right-wing party in the United States, I'm not talking Trump-like, just a big right-wing party, uh, if we were a multi-party system, that party would necessarily have to moderate in some way as it negotiated for power. Uh, the catch here is that we have a system of separated powers uh, where the president is independent of Congress. We often have a Congress controlled one or both houses by the opposite party. It cries out for compromise on issues themselves, but there's no structure as there is in a multi-party system to force coalition agreements. So the what has happened on the right, I believe, has created a peculiar problem for us that wouldn't be as severe uh, in a multi-party system. Well, seen from Europe, of course, what you have isn't parties at all, but sort of loose-limbed electoral uh, associations that reconfigure every four years to elect a president and then more or less disband again. Um, it doesn't begin to compare with how organized... Although we also have it all the way down to the state level, it's true. I'm, I'm, I, but I'm I take being mildly point. facetious. But, but the, it... it I mean, compared with what you have here, uh, the European party system, uh, certainly in Germany, uh, certainly in Great Britain, has been, you know, really more like an auto workers union, you know, a tight discipline, you know, and sort of old gentlemen with firm jaws, you know, who would be running around as enforcers to make sure nobody went out of line. Now, uh, of course, I'm, I'm caricaturing lightly because that system, too, is under a fair amount of pressure. Uh, and, and in fact, we have seen Germany move from essentially a uh, two-big party system with a small bellwether party, the liberals, to one that is effectively now six and, and with uh, right-wing parties like the AFD, the alternative for Germany, moving in from the right. God knows uh, what could come in the next federal election, which is in 2017. And indeed, we have bellwether regional elections coming up, three of them, uh, where that party could make major inroads, and that would change the, the, the public space already. Um, I do also want, want to talk about this, uh, this, this movement to, to the right that EJ was, was mentioning. Um, in, in Germany, obviously, that's a, that's a very sort of special space because of our history. Um, the, the result was of our history was that German conservative parties always made a particular point of trying to hoover up as much of the sort of nationalist uh, feeling as they could on, on the right so as to leave little or no space for actual right-wing, extremist right-wing sentiments. Now, um, I'm, I'm, you know, in all honesty, and any political scientist in Germany can, can tell you this, um, there has always been anti-American, um, right-wing extremism, inclu including anti-Semitic feeling in, in my country as a cultural constant that probably goes back to the 19th century and farther. Um, but it has, until now, never managed to get itself elected, um, except um, in a couple of cases on the regional and local level. That may be about to shift in, in these upcoming elections, and particularly since the extreme right wing is trying to gain a foothold on this alternative for Germany, which um, is itself not extremist, but is, I think, sort of dangling a toe in the water and, and trying to see uh, what it can, uh, whether it can attract some of that extremely right wing sentiment 
um, in order to boost its 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 position ahead of next year's federal elections. So that's certainly a part of the political spectrum in Germany to watch. I, I think it was Franz Josef Strauss who was yes. the legendary leader legendary, of the Christian indeed. social yeah. union, the Bavarian partner of the Christian Democrats, who said something like, never let anybody get to our right. In other words, yes, there was a famous much statement. No one where, between us and Attila the Hun, yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because <laughs> he, it was... You know, and so it meant that he was a right-wing yeah. figure. On the other hand, yeah. it was partly an anti-fascist, anti-Nazi kind of sentiment that we do not want the rise of a, the, you know, that kind of nationalism again. You know, and we should sort of broaden here what's really striking when you look at the rise of a far right in Europe. You have Marine Le Pen's National Front, and while in the regional elections there was a kind of pushback in the second round of voting, um, she threatens to. Uh, be in the final round of presidential voting. And she has gained ground with this peculiar, um, you know, ability to sort of take the old French far right. And she has been adding, because of economic discontent, some voters who were former communist voters, we forget France used to have a very large communist party, in the regions that have been hurt the hardest. But you also have the rise of a far right um, in places you might never expect it. They're in, in the Netherlands for quite some time and in Denmark, but now also um, Sweden. in Sweden, which mm. is not a place you would expect a far-right party to rise. The uh, um, In the UK, you also had it. They were they only won one seat in the last election, but they played – UKIP uh, played a real role uh, in that election so that, um, you know, th- this is not a – purely academic or issue or some kind of odd obsession. I mean, this is a reality that this this combination of social unease, security unease, and economic unease is coming together uh, to feed. And now, I think in the Trump campaign, as I said, you're seeing some of those sentiments. And again, the cause of this are very American. Trump is a very American sort of figure in many ways, but it's an Americanized version of the kind of coalitions that tended to come together on the European uh, far right. And I think as this campaign progresses, depending on how he does, I think you're going to see more comparisons of Trump to a European circumstance, which should probably horrify many of his supporters to know that the roots of this movement, as some of the ideas, are more European than they are traditionally American. That said, um, I mean, I think you're entirely right. Uh, but I would also say there's a glorious American tradition for for this kind of sort of big mouth bloviator um, that that probably goes back to the 18th century, wouldn't you say? Um, I mean, certainly in the in the 19th in 19th century politics in the early 20, 20th century. You always had figures around who 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 were of of this nature and who were able to siphon off, you know, some of the some of the political mood, uh, except that they never quite made it this far in the in the, in the primaries. I think that's what's shocking right. about it, this particular election period. No, that's true. I mean, uh, I think. I think all political cultures produce bloviators at one point or another, but ours are very colorful. Um, You know, one point that must be underscored about Trump before we make too much of him as an American phenomenon, up to now in the primaries, he's gotten an average of about 34 percent of the vote. Um, And so let's just say – um, let's assume 40 percent of the vote. That is 40 percent of the Republican Party and those who lean toward the Republican Party. 40 percent of 40 percent is 16 percent. Uh, now, you know, George Wallace got 13 percent uh, in the 1968 election running as a third party candidate. So I think we have to be careful 
you know, you can understate the importance of the Trump movement because I really do think we have to pay serious attention to the grievances of those who are voting for Trump. But you can overstate it as reflective of where American opinion is uh, because even in this period, two-thirds of Republicans roughly are voting for someone other than Trump. Uh, and and that re- represents a rather small percentage of uh, overall American opinion. But it is a sign that of the movement right of the Republican Party that so far Trump's major a competitor in terms of votes has been Ted Cruz, uh, who is not of the same kind as Trump. He's more of a traditional conservative right-wing figure, but he is the, he has been running second so far. So it does tell you about a shift inside the Republican Party. I did want to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about uh, the right-wing populism in the last you know decade or so in the U.S. It has this Tea Party, this very anti-government sort of bent to it. And yet currently Trump seems to be running highest in the polls as a much more authoritarian figure, a much more sort of strong man figure uh, of the European model like Putin. Um, or I'm even thinking of uh, Viktor Orban is the Hungarian prime mm-hmm. minister who says, no, I'm here for the creation of an illiberal state. Um, you know, in other, words, in other words, Trump is not anti-statist. He talks about taking actions that require a strong government. Is there a disconnect there between people who have felt disenfranchised from government who previously were electing people like Cruz who want to stand athwart and say, say stop in the Buckley model versus this guy that they're now cheering for who um, – isn't that Buckley's quote? Am I misremembering uh, Yes, that? no, that's quite right. National <laughs> Review's first editorial said we stand athwart history yelling stop. Um, I think that that understates uh, an authoritarian streak that existed even in parts of the right, like the Tea Party, particularly on issues like immigration. In other words, that um, if economic discontent is one pillar of Trumpism, very strong opposition to immigration uh, is another pillar of Trumpism, and that when you looked at Tea Party membership, um, you know, people who said they supported the Tea Party – um, they were far more opposed to immigration and immigration reform than anybody else uh, in the country. And so what Trump – the strong words Trump is saying about immigration are in keeping with that. And also let's be honest. If we look back um, at fights we had in the United States about the so-called mosque at ground zero, uh, which the attempt to build an Islamic cultural center of several blocks from uh, the old World Trade Center – um, this, this I thought, was a horrible moment uh, where some conservatives uh, who were echoing what actually George W. Bush said, I, I think one of the finest hours in Bush's presidency was when he went to the mosque, the Islamic Center down the street from us here, right after 9-11 and said, we cannot um, uh, you know, discriminate against our Muslim brothers and sisters. They're in the army. They're just like us. Um, but that was abandoned with this fight over the uh, Islamic Community Center. So this anti-Muslim feeling has been there and has been fanned by parts of the traditional right. So I don't think uh, Trump is as far from that um, as um, you know, your question might have suggested, um, even though and, – and indeed, when you look at opposition to Trump, there is a strong libertarian part of the right uh, and most of the libertarians are not for Trump. Uh, they identify with his foreign policy. It's, I mean, that's another way in which Trump is unorthodox. He is, you know, he has criticized 
the Iraq war and George W. Bush in stronger terms than many Democrats mustered. Um, so there are some libertarians who have sympathy for his foreign policy because they're anti-interventionist, but they're very critical of a whole strongman idea of government. So you do have a kind of fragmenting on the right that you're, that's visible in this campaign. While we're sort of on the subject of what audience Trump is, is catering to, there was a, a quote from a Charlie Pierce article from not too long ago that um, I sort of wanted to get at and see what your your reaction to and what you would, your take on it is, where he talks about – where he's talking the difference between the left-wing populism and the right-wing populism and he's saying that Sanders' campaign has failed the most superficial test of American populism. Its targets are Wall Street and billionaires, vague categories of people with whom most Americans have little to no – contact. This is opposed to Trump, who tells his audience that the problem is Mexicans and Muslims. Uh, people may not know who's on the board of Citigroup, but they know they have to hit one for English. They don't know billionaires, but they see women in hijab at the mall. The Sanders campaign gives them targets for their anger, but the Trump campaign gives them enemies, and that makes all the difference. You know, that's interesting. I love Charlie Pierce's writing, and I admire him. We're also uh, fellow New England Patriots fans. Uh, but <laughs> Um, you know, I think that for a lot of people on the left, um, you know, those are pretty potent targets that uh, uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders is pointing to. But it does show the difference between Trump and Sanders. There, I think he has a point that um, you know that, that, and that's I think the particular danger of what Trump is doing. I, I was giving a talk on my book, and a woman in the audience uh, who turned out to be Indian. Um, got up and told the story of her uh, child, whom I recall was about 12 years old or 10 years old, being asked in school uh, by a friend, are you Muslim? And he said, no, I'm Hindu. And then he got invited to a birthday party. And she said, you know, what really alarmed me about this is if he had said, I am a Muslim, uh, he might not have gotten invited to that birthday party. Um, and so I think there's a long tradition of being critical of concentrated economic power in our country particularly but elsewhere, uh, whereas the personalization of this negative feeling and one call it prejudice um, and, and a kind of enabling of it and encouraging of it, I think that is very alarming and that was the point of her question, that she is troubled that something that on the whole, we you know, we've had bouts of prejudice against immigrants, you know, from the beginning, you know, since the Irish came in in the 1840s. But this is one of those moments where if you are an immigrant or the child of an immigrant, um, you have some reason to be alarmed. And I, I think that is something as Americans we've got to fight. I think that's sort of getting into what um, perhaps my last question might be, which is that what what do we do? Where do we go from here? Where does how does government respond to the economic grievances, respond to the fears <clears throat> of the pop of their populaces um, without giving in to hatreds and bigotries. Obviously, you can't just wave a magic wand and make the economy be wonderful again uh, with strong mm -hmm. uh, sectors. But what are the solutions? Well, if there uh, are let, me, let me start off with that maybe. I think um, – and say what the solution isn't. And I, and I say this uh, as a German who uh, quite a while ago wrote her German doctoral thesis on direct democracy in America. Um, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by training. I'm a passionate fan of American constitutional law and its, and its tradition, and in particular of the, of the thinking that went into the Federalist Papers. 
Um, as um, you know, there is a, an, another sort of parallel strain that is less talked about than federalism in this country, which is anti-federalism. And I would say that Ted Cruz is the most potent, most intelligent and most dangerous uh, articulation of anti-federalism of this present political moment. Um, in that he questions much of what federalism stands for, including the need for bipartisanship and the need to find compromise and consensus between the executive and the legislative branch and indeed within Congress. Uh, in fact, that he has staunchly and aggressively opposed that. I mean, perhaps in American history itself, uh, the federalist strain needed a democratic corrective from time to time. I'm sure that's true. But the, the problem with, with direct democracy is that not only does it tend to run away with itself, it also tends to undermine fundamentally and lethally the institutions and processes of representative democracy. And I think what we're now, the moment that we are in now, um, and this is true for both America and for Europe, is a moment where technology and social media have enabled a uh, direct democracy to take hold in uh, even where there are no referendum and initiative provisions to formally provide for that. And I think we now need a way of countering that. And I, I have a, I think you, there, there is no, there is no one size fits all re recipe for this. Nor do I think that we can look at one that you know that there is a uh, one single thing that one can do, and then everything else will fall into place. Clearly, political elites and and perhaps the pundits, the punditocracy, and people like us included, have been complacent about the underlying assumptions and the underlying elements. Of, of of representative democracy, namely the the viability, the the health of the social contract. Yeah, the um, as you said, liberal not so long ago, right after nine eleven, became a dirty word. I would argue that inequality also became a dirty word. Um, distributional justice became a dirty word, and I think we now we we need to realize that representative democracy and pluralism can only function if there is a sense of fairness in the economy and in society. And we need to look to that. We also, I think, have devalued the office of the politician. I, I have talked to congressmen who told me that they spend 90% of their waking hours uh, fundraising for their next election, which is in two years or less than that. Um, that, that strikes me as terrible. I mean, I can tell you similar stories about Germany. Uh, people have long, or Europe, people have longer terms there, but they, for example, have much less support in in their work than, say, an American congressman or woman has. Um, they have far far less staff. They have less information. They often feel overwhelmed by the existential decisions that they need to make, such as I don't know, you know, sending troops to Afghanistan. So I I, I think what we need to do is is you know reevaluate the social contract, um, make it healthy. We need to revalue the office of uh, the public office and the and and the job of politician and I think we need to protect politicians from this sort of permanent you know uh, pressure on them to um, to to fundraise to to be you know to to be beholden to every single one of their their voters who writes them threatening emails I mean th I think there's there's something there that needs to be repaired EJ, I'm, I'm sure you have things to say about this too. Well, I, I identify with a great deal of what you just said. Um, I, 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 when I think about the Federalist Papers, as somebody writes a newspaper column, we are all put to shame because those guys wrote these remarkable 
uh, columns, in effect, mm-hmm. that were long they pieces were, yeah. defending exactly right. the Constitution yeah. with a speed that is astonishing. So we all wish our columns were collected as a document like the Federalist Papers, and it's not going to happen to most of us, <laughs> if any of us. Um, on valuing politics, I couldn't agree more in my the column I happened to write today. I quoted my favorite line on politics, which comes from the philosopher and my friend Mike Sandel, who said, when politics goes well, we can know a good in common that we cannot know alone. Uh, And we have utterly devalued the political business, the the political task, uh, which is to find agreement among broad groups of people, or at least workable uh, temporary agreements as we go forward as part of an ongoing uh, argument and that we can accomplish more together than any one of us can accomplish as an individual through a democratic system. Uh, I also would underscore the horror of our campaign money system uh, at the moment. And I think it is one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders has found traction because it is a central part of every speech that they're, you know, and people are saying money doesn't matter in this campaign. Look at Jeb Bush raised all this money and it didn't do him any good. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that the money tends to have its greater impact at the level of the congressional race and the Senate race. Um, The money can also condition what is talked about uh, in an election uh, campaign and what isn't talked about. Um, And that goes to my colleague's point about the social contract and uh, distributive justice. There are a lot of people who feel left out of the bargain. And paradoxically, uh, you know, two of the groups who feel that most strongly often find themselves at opposite ends of politics. One is the white working class, some of whom still vote Democratic, but many of whom, particularly in the South, uh, vote Republican. And the other is among African-Americans who feel um, disenfranchised and and not simply the very poor, but many middle-class and well-off African-Americans still feel stigmatized, are as worried as anyone about what happens when their kids are stopped by the police versus, say, when my kids are stopped by the police. You know, there is this legitimate anger out there that has to be grappled with. And on the economic front, I think one of the great accomplishments, actually, of Occupy Wall Street is it destigmatized the word inequality and that it made inequality a central issue again. I'll just close with this. I had, uh, right before I came here, I met with a brilliant young law uh, professor who makes a central argument about our Constitution, which is that it assumes a broadly middle-class nation uh, and that the founders themselves assumed that property would be not perfectly uh, distributed, not equally distributed, but broadly distributed and that there wouldn't be radical inequalities because if property gets radically— I'm sorry? Except for slaves, of course. Except for slaves, of course. (laughs) Amen. And, And thank you for bringing that up. If uh, property were sort of badly distributed all on one side, that is what leads to oligarchy. And so I do think we have to be sensitive to these problems. The my uh, Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street Journal is not someone I always agree with. I probably disagree with Peggy more often than I agree. But she had a formulation that all of us should think about in her column recently where she said, in many ways, this is a war between the protected and the unprotected. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to that, and it's something that all of us, but elites in particular, have to take very, very seriously. Well, and it's the vulnerability of the unprotected that is giving rise to all this anger and fear. And that, that I think, is the most potent message of this period on both sides of the Atlantic, that that is something that representative democracy has to address or fail. Amen. 
Well, on that <laughs> note, thank you both very much for being here. Constanza, EJ. You're very welcome. And, uh, it's a pleasure. Great joy. Thank, thank you. you.